This episode features themes of terrorism and descriptions of violence. Yarn Yarn 22, Lone Actor Terrorism The chaos in downtown Oklahoma City did indeed resemble Beirut after what police believed to be a 1,200-pound car bomb ripped through the nine-story federal building. Shortly the Oklahoma City bombings of 1995. 500 people were already in their offices, and at least 50 children were in a daycare center on the second floor. The 2011 Norway attacks. 700 people, mostly teens on the island. Some tried swimming for safety, only to be shot in the water. Kids hiding by the shoreline were shot point blank. The 2016 Nice truck attack. A lorry heads for the crowd. Witnesses spoke of how the vehicle swerved several times, maximizing the carnage. Afterwards, it can be seen covered in bullet holes. People initially thought they were hearing the Bastille Day fireworks. The three separate 2017 London attacks at London Bridge, Westminster and Finsbury Park. Two people have died in what the Metropolitan Police are describing as a terrorist incident on London Bridge. The attacker was later shot dead. And as I walked up the bridge onto the bridge where it happened, there was a lady in a pool of her own blood. Uh, there was another lady next to her. The 2019 shootings at Christchurch, New Zealand. The New Zealand police uh, head of uh, police did say one man has been charged with murder. He didn't give the name, he said he was in his late 20s, but this main suspect who live-streamed himself opening fire uh, at uh, one of the mosques in Christchurch, he'd also posted a manifesto online expressing extreme white supremacist views. Uh, what do all these terrorist attacks have in common? They were formulated, planned, and executed by a single individual. The new phenomenon that I see, that I'm very concerned about, is somebody who's never met another member of that terrorist organization, never trained at one of the camps, uh, who is simply inspired by the social media, the literature, the propaganda, the message to commit an act of violence in this country. Some of these attackers have become infamous household names, like Anders Breivik. Robin, Anders Baring Breivik is in court right now. He has admitted killing the 93 people here, but says he takes no criminal responsibility for it. He also says that he will explain himself in court today. All of this, as the magnitude of the horror what happened here is coming into sharper focus. Timothy McVeigh. Timothy McVeigh, guilty, guilty of murder, guilty of conspiracy, guilty on all 11 federal charges that he faced. And Timothy McVeigh could now be sentenced to death. And Ted Kaczynski. Breaking the Unabomber case. FBI agents are searching the Montana cabin of former mathematics professor Ted Kaczynski. Just moments ago, we received these pictures of the suspect in custody, sitting in the back of a white truck. The popular fear of lone actor attacks is that they're completely unpredictable, and so almost impossible to prevent. What motivates someone to carry out these heinous acts? And can attacks like this be prevented? These are some of the questions that this guy is trying to answer. Dr. Francis O'Connor. I do research on lone actor radicalization with two other academics called Stefan Maltaner at the Hamburg Institute of Social Research and Lasse Linda Kilde at the University of Aarhus. O'Connor is a native of Limerick, Ireland, but he's now settled in Cologne, Germany, where he's agreed to talk to me about his work over a Zoom call. Am I there? Yeah, you're back, yeah. Oh, yeah, the, yeah, you're back. As I say, you can't include this now in the actual podcast. I started off by asking Dr. O'Connor, what was the focus of their research and how extensive is the data set they work from? Our job was to look 
at the early stage of lone actor radicalization. So what takes a, not a person who is a so-called normal person, uh, who what, what leads them to take the steps that convince them that violence is first necessary and a positive thing, and then actually to take the next step again and to carry out an attack on their own. And we worked on the base of a database that was gathered by uh, actually an Irish academic called Paul Gill at the University College London, who's he's like the, the key figure in the field of uh, um, lone actor radicalization. Since then, which also coincided with a big peak in lone actor violence, uh, we just continued gathering the data. So building on his original data set, now we're up to around 310 cases, uh, 309 cases, I think I added two or three yesterday. This data set covers the entire English-speaking world, most of in Western Europe, uh, especially Scandinavia and Germany, because of my colleagues who are involved speaking the relevant languages. And of course, then there's some cases which are more inter ones that would say come to international attention. But where we our data set doesn't cover that systematic. But for Western Europe, North America, it is uh, I would say extremely represented. So, how do you actually conduct the research on those cases? Do you interview people? get primary sources or is it through media reports? Uh, so the first thing when you're talking about lone actor radicalization is the low frequency phenomenon. I mean, we've looked at 1990 to 2021 and we have 300 odd cases. So that's an extremely low level. So if you compare that to, I don't know, any other types of violence, like non-political violence, like I don't know, uh, domestic violence, people murdering their wives or their husbands or and criminal violence, I mean, you're looking at tens and tens and tens and tens of cases. So it is a low data. So we don't, the, the data isn't there to do fancy regress, regressions and quantitative analysis. It's a very s- small, the data we have is, of course, limited. The other issue is that in a lot of lone actors, they, they die in the course of the attacks. They're not available to interview, even if you wanted to interview them. Uh, and it also means that there usually isn't a court case, which also removes some forms of um, data. So court documents are really, for anyone that works on political violence, are a really good source of data. I mean, of course, all court systems have inherent biases. So they're not, it's not perfect data, but it's a very good source of data. So for example, the Anders Breivik trial, you have an awful lot of information about it. He began with that clenched fist salute. He looked composed and unemotional as the prosecution read out the details of the 77 people he had killed. The only time Anders Bering Breivik was moved to tears was when his own anti-immigrant manifesto appeared on the screens in court. A court whose authority he refused to recognise. The first day of the murder trial in Oslo was an unsettling affair. So there was a lot of information come out in the, in the course of that trial. Well, of course, sometimes there's trials like the Christchurch attacker, the guy who attacked the mosque in uh, New Zealand and killed uh, two mosques and killed 50-odd people. He just didn't didn't really engage. Like he, he, We didn't learn anything from it. So usually, would, in our case, we did get some primary source documents, but not for many cases. So we got some where we got uh, restricted information from police, from judicial uh, documents and reports, which were not made publicly available, but through specific channels as academics we apply. But for the most amount of the cases you have, we relied on publicly available court documents. And then for, I mean, for the large span of the cases, a lot of it is secondary data. So that's like newspaper reports, things like that. And a lot of that is also some kind of analysis of their online behavior. 
you know, if you're lucky enough to get their Facebook page before it's taken down, you can get some of their who they're in contact with or who they're not in contact with. Uh, so it's kind of a mixture. And the other big issue is, of course, um, so our cases come from 1990 to 2021, which is 30 odd years. But you have much less data from a case from 1995, firstly because we're retrospectively analyzing it. Uh, and secondly, because, I mean, you don't have the quantity of, you didn't have Facebook, you didn't have their Twitter page uh, profiles and so on. So you have a, a lag, so we've much more information. So when I hear about an attack anywhere, at the, I immediately go looking for as much information as immediately as I can, gather as many articles. And you can't do that for some guy in Oklahoma in 1991 or so. We don't have perfect data on these cases. And that's, that's probably the most challenging part of it. And even when you do have examples, for example, access to their, or get access one way or the other to, to their uh, social media, I mean, you have to be very careful with how you use that because a lot of times they're specifically tailored before they, you know, they, they, they try to guide the media and academics down specific pathways. And you see that a lot in these manifestos that have become very prominent. So the Christchurch attacker left a manifesto. Some of the American cases around that left manifestos. Breivik left a manifesto. Uh, and in the case of the Christchurch Manifesto, it's, I mean, there's this phenomenon, especially in the far, well, exclusively the far right of shit posting, where they just put in any nonsense, inside jokes that people in specific, not even the broader far right or right wing extremist milieu, but specific subgroups online uh, would get like these kind of jokes. And uh, so, I mean, you have to be very cautious with how that's used. And sometimes you see, uh, people taking at face value some of the things that these guys deliberately put out there to mislead you. So it's it's a tricky thing, and it it I mean it comes. I'd I'd like to think, of course, with experience that you get better at it and so on. But it's not a it's not a the data is a fundamental issue. Either it's the scarcity of the data or and too much data, which is deliberately there just to just kind of f- fuck around a little bit. Like before we get into it properly. I just wanted to clear something up about the term lone wolf. Attacks launched by what are referred to as lone wolf terrorists. Concerned about the threats posed by lone wolves. Lone wolf strikes here in the United States. Lone wolves are the terrorists most likely to strike on U.S. soil. You don't like the term, am I right? Yeah, I mean, so the first point is that in the academic, the academic consensus for the most part, not 100%, is that we try to avoid the term lone wolf it's a kind of a misleading impression because they give this notion that you have a lone wolf. Also, apart from zoologically, it doesn't make sense. But this kind of guy on the margins, a bit of a glamorous kind of hero of the night, and then he attacks. I mean, they're not like that. Most of them are kind of losers. And it, uh, so we avoid using that term because it tends to glamorize these guys. So we just call them lone actor, which is fairly boring and dry uh, 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 description. The, the term lone wolf actually comes from the American uh, far right, the American uh, far right extremist milieu. So, I mean, you have to imagine the trend, the long arc of far right extremism in American politics. I mean, up until whatever 1960s, 70s, Ku Klux Klan was essentially everywhere. And and these are, I mean, by any standard means, far right extremists, far right terrorists. Then the Klan declined in power uh, over the, I mean, and there's loads of excellent research done on this. And what you had was a kind of a very fragmented American far right, uh, active in different small groups, all fighting with each other over ideological things. You know, those guys who love the Nazis, those guys who didn't like the Nazis, the German Nazis, the National Socialists, and so on. And by the 
80s, you had, I mean, most, they weren't up to much. They weren't really achieving very much. Uh, and they weren't capable of serious violence. So um, a man called Louis Dean came up with this idea of uh, leaderless resistance instead of, it was every like American patriot or yeah, so-called patriot, their duty to carry out attacks on their own because being in a group, they're all infiltrated by the FBI or just wasn't working out. So they started this discourse of leaderless resistance, carry out the attack on your own. You don't need to have a huge plot, just do it. I mean, it's your individual duty to carry it out. And so the American far-right milieu, it's extremely common. You look, I mean, if you look through our data set or our articles, you have dozens, like so many American attacks from the American far-right. So for your research, how are you defining a lone actor attack? Does it have to meet a certain criteria to get in your data set? But the first thing is it has to be political. So that is somebody that does something with that's expressly linked to a political goal. So for example, a school shooter, which in essence can go and kill people, but that's not political. If you had a school shooting that someone went into school and said, I'm killing all the black students because I believe in white supremacy, that would be a lone actor attack. But if you take the classic school shootings that were, we'll say, of in popular culture, well-known, I mean, none of those are lone actor attacks. Political uh, element, that's hard sometimes to find out. You have a lot of poor media reporting and journalism and so on. That it's, For example, there a few weeks ago in Colorado, I think, a guy carried out a shooting in, in a supermarket who was a Syrian refugee from, but from like 2001. Law enforcement vehicles and officers swarmed the area around 5.30 tonight in Boulder, Colorado, after reports of a gunman shooting in the store. At one point, police let a shirtless man out of the store in handcuffs, but they have not confirmed whether he is the suspect. Late tonight, the chief of Boulder police confirmed 10 people were killed in the shooting, including an officer who was reportedly one of the first on scene. He was a Syrian guy and a Muslim, but I mean, we have to find out more. He will be tried in court. So it's, I mean, he's a very hard person to place. Just because you're a Muslim doesn't mean this is a jihadist attack, no more than if it's you're a white person, this is a white supremacist attack. So, and the, the process of figuring it out is a very iterative process, you know. You include someone in the ads that more information comes out, you go, actually, he's not a lone actor, then you take him out. So this is a over and back. The second one is that you're not a member of a group acting on behalf of a group. So I'm not a member of the uh, the IRA uh, or whatever group you want, uh, who, like Al-Qaeda saying, you're a suicide bomber, go there on your own and carry out an individual attack. So that's an individual attack, but it's not a lone actor attack because you're acting on behalf of a group. The attack is planned by a group. It's So you're just essentially a foot soldier. Uh, and the last one is that you're not under the command of anybody else. So it's, I mean, there is no, the, the plan is initiated by yourself, largely initiated by yourself, because of course all of our ideas come from everywhere else. You know, if some guy sitting in Syria says, carry out attacks on the, the foreigners or the, the unbelievers, I mean, he's not telling you to do it. But you know, so our influences are obviously collectively shaped and it's a relational process. So those would be our three main criteria. Then you'll also have ones, when you get more into the nitty gritty of it, is a degree of intentionality and planning. So a big misconception is that most lone actors have year-long plans where they pick their targets and they figure out what they're going to do. The planning of lone actor attacks tends to be much, much shorter than, we'll say, what's popularly perceived. It's just that the most high-profile cases, like 
Anders Breivik, they are much, they're the exception. I mean, you have some guys who carry out the attack after a day or two's planning, a week, uh, a month. So it's not, it, they're much more common. But there has to be a degree of planning. So, for example, we don't include in our research a lot of these sovereign citizens in America who get stopped at a traffic stop by some regular cop fighter on it, their jeep is uninsured, whatever the reason, they'll be stopped. And then a fight breaks out and they shoot the cops. Derek Barry, who calls himself a sovereign citizen, faces a number of criminal charges after police say he interfered in his son's traffic stop. Well, Eric, sovereigns believe the government has no right to tax them, issue licenses, nor do they believe in the statutory authority of the police or courts. I mean, this isn't, there isn't an intentional attack. So these are people who don't like the state representatives and so on, who could potentially, according to their ideology, carry out an attack, but unless we have some evidence that this is something that they plan to get arrested so they could shoot somebody, they're also excluded. So the main criteria are political uh, element, not to be doing it on behalf of an armed group and to be kind of a self-initiated attack or plan rather than something that somebody else has convinced you to do or some other movement. I guess the big question then is, why do these people carry out attacks? Is there a specific psychological profile or a set of circumstances or is there a certain background that leads someone to become a lone actor? So you have different approaches that emphasize different aspects of why lone actors carry out attacks. So a lot of it, the original one was this kind of focus on their mental well-being. So they were taken as people who were mentally unstable. And I mean, then you have a whole lot of psychological and psychiatric jump. Uh, almost medical research on these guys uh, well forensic let's say not medical where they look at their mental state were they in their capacities were they having delusions and so on so for example mental illness is not a, first of all it's not a, a sufficient ground to explain why someone carries out an attack because if you consider that roughly one third of the western European population is considered to have different forms of mental illness like, so it's not sufficient and then you have others that look very much at their like ideolo- ideology that they profess or did profess. Ideology is also not sufficient because you have all these people who believe refugees aren't welcome in Europe or unbelievers uh, should be killed or Jews are, bro- uh, con- you know, whatever, controlling the world. Uh, so you have millions of people who believe these things, but they don't carry out this uh, behavior. So what we wanted to look at, and it was a, a developed from our myself and my two colleagues, Stefan Maltan and Lassen Linda Gilda, uh, they, they came up with it and we worked on it then together, was this notion of relational perspective. So we consider loneliness to be a lone actor is a relational configuration in the sense that in the world that we live in, nobody's born alone, nobody lives alone. Uh, so we wanted to see like how did they get to this point where they decided to carry out an act of political violence on their own. So we looked at the relationships that they had that were then broken off to get to this point. So we wanted to look a little bit more at the context around it. So the social ties, the connections with other groups or the breaking of connections with other groups, the connections within their immediate social environment. So for example, if you look at a lot of these uh, individuals, their attack is preceded by some type of personal misfortune. Their wife leaves them. It's generally men, of course, which is another issue. Uh, Their wife leaves them. Uh, their father died, their, they lost their job, they went bankrupt. So you have this combination. So we want to look at how these ties interacted rather than looking at an abstract sense of I hate, the, I hate Jews and I hate foreigners. 
Like that doesn't explain why in this specific case, this person carried out this attack. So we developed this relational phenomenon and our main finding from it was uh, that you have kind of two broad patterns of loan after radicalization. The first one was of guys who never managed to, like people who shared the same views as existing groups, but they never really managed to get into these groups. They were always left on the outskirts of the, the these milieus. And that we found different patterns. One pattern was of guys who were just simply quite withdrawn. So people who are not very self-confident. People uh, who are, in simple terms, shy. You know, they don't impose themselves. So they kind of go unnoticed by these groups. So their potential recruits were just never noticed. Then we found people like, we say Anders Breivik is the best example, who are, for pathological and non-pathological reasons, just extremely annoying. So people don't, they, they can't get on with people. So Breivik tried to join every group you can imagine, and he kept getting rejected. Even online, before he carried out the attack, he was interacting with these other prominent far-right figures, and nobody really engaged with him. And when you consider how actively the, these radical milieus kind of try to nourish contacts with people, it's a kind of amazing that no one was really taking him seriously. And another group that we found, which was especially common amongst uh, some of the jihadist uh, uh, attackers is this kind of volatile characters in and out of a criminal lifestyle then becoming religious for a few months into jail out of jail not really reliable so even though they had contacts in many of these cases like family contacts even with radical projects like going to fight in Afghanistan or going to fight in Syria no one really trusted them because they were too volatile so those are guys who were kept on the outside for these different reasons which were a combination of personality and I mean personality is important because why would somebody, it's, it's our interests and our preferences which lead us to specific settings from where we can be recruited. So that was one pattern we observed. And the second pattern we observed was people who were, who had very successful, if you will, radical militant careers. And these were people who were war in armed groups, uh, leading around, uh, involved in armed milieu or political milieus. But at some point, they were either kicked out for different reasons. In one of our case studies, it was a... Uh, Somalian, um, a Danish man of Somalian background who had a very successful career in Al-Shabaab in Somalia and then he was kind of essentially doing a commuting type of insurgency like he was going to Somalia fighting for X amount of time, come back to Denmark and go back and forth and he was arrested kind of by chance in Kenya by the authorities and then he was sent back to Denmark and the radical Al-Shabaab group there in Denmark, they were gone why is this guy arrested in Kenya and then after a few weeks released, not put in prison, sent back to Denmark. So they were very suspicious of him. And he was essentially marginalized from this community. But then you have to imagine you're someone who believes, you obviously have internalized this. You are someone who believes in the, this group's ideology, in their goals. So he decided to carry out an attack in a way to kind of redeem his personal, we'll say, view of himself, you know, as someone who was fighting for the true cause he tried to carry, uh, ta uh, unsuccessfully tried to kill one of the Danish cartoonists. This is the man police say tried to murder Danish cartoonist Kurt Westergaard. The 28-year-old broke into Westergaard's home last night wielding an axe and a knife and shouting he wanted to kill him. Police shot him in the knee to stop him. Five years ago, a Danish newspaper commissioned a dozen cartoons depicting the Prophet Muhammad. Kurt Westergaard drew an image of the prophet with his turban shaped as a bomb. Westergaard came out of hiding last year in spite of the million-dollar price Islamic militants put on his head. He's been under close police protection ever since. 
that wasn't enough. And the other group that we found, and this is quite common amongst far-right groups, is that guys are involved in their local Nazi scene or local patriot or sovereign citizens or whatever group you will that'll have you in America and they're going, these guys are only chatting shit all the time. You know, they're really not. They're just talking about doing something. And I have to do it. I have to carry out this attack because if I don't do it, nobody else will. Uh, and these guys, so they're not isolated at all. You know, they potentially could have a militia. They could have a, an underground terrorist group or an underground armed group. Uh, but they're going, these guys aren't up to it. Like, I'm, I have to do it myself. So these people with very kind of strong self-confidence, you know, assertive people who view themselves as essentially better than their comrades. So these were the two broader patterns of people who were embedded in groups, who were key, groups or milieus, who were uh, left or were expelled from them, and then the other group who were withdrawn, who for different reasons tended not to get recruited uh, into these groups or were failed, failed joiners, if you will. Are there certain types of ideologies, you mentioned jihadis, or political goals that most lone actors have? So the vast majority of lone actor attacks are carried out by jihadists or far-right actors, which you have a kind of miscellaneous gang of very, very few leftist uh, people, very few. Um, I mean, I, I, off the top of my head, out of the 310 or 9 or 10 cases, we have maybe 7 or 8. And this leftist is also a bit vague because an American understanding of what's a leftist is a bit different to a European understanding, of course. But um, you have like some animal rights activists, you have some so, but these are much more the exception. And then historically, which is of course not involved in our research, you have uh, uh, the anarchist attacks of the late 19th century and early 20th century, which was encouraged by the uh, anarchist milieu at the time. So, I mean, you have different logics to why some groups support and some groups hope, but that varies a lot according to the local context, I would say. You just mentioned there that loan attacks were encouraged by that, by that group. Do established or official terror organizations always encourage individuals to act themselves or do they ever disassociate themselves from say unofficial or unsanctioned attacks? It's very different from group to group so of course Al-Qaeda in the mid-2000s started to encourage so before that Al-Qaeda had very dramatic plots extremely well planned extremely selective recruits you know there wasn't anyone who was carrying out 9-11 or so on so these are people who are filtered through numbers of kind of, if it's not exaggerated, but these are people who are selected to do a job and an expensive, like, I mean, these are big plots that costed money and planning and so on. Probably is a reflection of some of the, of the weakening through different processes. Uh, Al-Qaeda in around the, from the mid-2000s started to also encourage uh, these kind of individual attacks. Uh, if you're in the land of the unbelievers and so on, you should carry out these attacks. And this was really upped a level by ISIS and they, they are, one of their main figures is Al-Adnani guy in the 2015 or 16. Once it was kind of getting difficult to travel to Syria, once this kind of, the route to jihad was kind of blocked off by international efforts and different reasons, they started encouraging it and that's when you have this big peak in attacks in Europe and in North America. So they, they, it was a big benefit to them and it also, because this, the, f- the nature of lone actor violence is that it's it's apparently or it's largely as popularly viewed as completely unpredictable so that's why it's terrifying so anyone any Muslim that lives in your neighborhood could be the next bomber but then if you transport that back to Europe where you have a very different 
far-right scene, very different far-right context. So, for example, in Italy, you have a high level of far-right violence, so attacks on immigrants, attacks on leftists, attacks on whoever is the not flavor of the day, but local fascists. But they have a very structured, very hierarchical um, form of violence, and they never encouraged lone actor violence. So what you had is there you have, I mean, in a, a three or four attacks by, where you have loads of violent fascists, but you only have two, three or four attacks. So you have a very different, so you have big variation between the scenes. Germany then has a combination of lone actor, far-right lone actors, and organized collective Nazi groups. So it, dep- it depends from context to context. In my introduction there, I mentioned a few of the best-known attacks, or the best-known, to me at least, and the periods in between them seem to get shorter and shorter. I named three from London that happened in the same year, 2017, I think. I was living in London at the time, and it seemed like every couple of months there was a new lone actor attack. This morning, our country woke to news of another terrorist attack on the streets of our capital city. The second this month, and every bit as sickening as those which have come before. What was it about that period in time and space? Why was there a peak? So, I mean, that's exactly what we're looking at, myself, Stefan and Lasse, in this book that we're writing. So if you imagine lone actor radicalization, which is not a new phenomenon, you, know, you have the anarchist examples of the 19th century, but it is a phenomenon that's much more prominent now. There's probably lots of uncovered or unremarked upon lone actor attacks in the 20s and 30s that we don't know about. But, but, so it's a new field in the academic world. We've no simple answer for it, but we do have some preliminary findings, let's say. So you have a clear cluster in Germany of far-right attacks by organized groups and by individuals around the refugee crisis. And I'll get back to your London point now in a minute. Um, so what you have there is, um, it's, it's, it's a clear, cor- I mean, it's a cl- correlation, causation, if you will, between uh, the increased presence in the media of constant talk about refugees. And then, of course, refugees were actually here and you had proximate targets. So let's say you live in some disadvantaged part of East Germany where everyone is, there's a lot of people with sympathetic to far-right extremism, but you don't have very many foreigners. So, I mean, if you're someone who's probably never even been to Berlin or to been to Berlin, where are you, who are you going to attack? The next thing you know, there's a, a center set up with 30 guys from Afghanistan. Then you have a target it's in the media and it's, there's a legitimation of it. So you had like the critique and this is where we have to look at the macro level and you can't just say because there's racist politicians at the national level, this is what happens. So we have to investigate this relationship much more. But if if the arguments you hear in your local village from your local Nazi buddies are also being echoed in the Bundestag by the AfD and in mainstream news outlets and newspapers, then, I mean, you have, it's you feel empowered that, you know, it's kind of, and you can because there's a target nearby. I mean, you, you can find someone to attack. So this was, they all clustered around and then, what we looked at was the thing called uh, encouragement cues. So let's say you have all the ingredients in the past. You know, you have, you, you hate whoever your adversaries are. You're, you're having a personally shit time. Your girlfriend dumped you. Your car was stolen. Your business gone bankrupt. So you have all these things and you're going to go, oh God, my life is actually going terrible. Well, why then? What's the next step to act? And what we discovered was indirect encouragement cues. So you have direct encouragement cues, which would be when we'll say that the guy, the ISIS figures were saying, run people over at your cars, be a hero for Islam. 
So that's a direct encouragement cue. And an indirect encouragement cue is when people you can empathize with or uh, recognize, see yourself, identify with, carry out an attack. And I mean, of course, when you look at normal media outlets, people have gone, oh, terrible, another terrorist attack. There's folks on the victim. and But that's not how it's always represented. So if you're someone who's involved in a far-right milieu and you're in specific online forums and you talk to your racist neighbor and so on, they're going, oh, yeah, great. That's another five whatever foreigners killed. So this is an, you see someone doing something like that. You see the kind of social recognition they get and going, fuck this. So why wouldn't I do something similar? There's this refugee center around the corner. So you have that notion. So, I mean, it's very hard when you think, oh, someone in Russia did something. I'm not Russian. I don't speak Russian. You don't have this kind of, it's like, it's like, I mean, when your formerly fat friend takes up running and then he's like really fit and you're going, shit, if he can do it, I can do it because you you, know, you sure. can whereas I mean you're not going to be motivated by some Olympic level I don't know Moroccan long distance runner in London in the years you were living there you had and there's also another dynamic this escalation between the two so your right wing guys attack a uh, uh, Muslim community or whatever you have Britons first and uh, that Robinson prick wandering around so you have this kind of escalating dynamic where it becomes all in if you imagine that every one of us has a specific amount of time a day where we engage with the outside world, you know, we read the newspaper, we talk to our neighbours, we talk to our friends, our girlfriend, our boyfriend. And then when this kind of gets more enveloped with Tommy Robinson's march on this part of London, blah, blah, blah. So you kind of become more immersed in this. So these things become what's called in the literature more salient. So the, instead of just being, you know, I hate Nazis or I hate non-believers, as something in the back of your mind, it's everywhere. You read it, your neighbors talking about it. So this kind of envelops you. And next thing you see, some guy who looks like you, who could be you, carries out an attack. You're going, fuck, yeah. I mean, why wouldn't I do an attack? Like, what's my excuse? This guy's doing it. He's carrying out. He's defending the the Duma. He's, you know, fighting back. And then you carry it out. So these kind of encouragement cues that you get from seeing other ones. <laughs> which we called indirect encouragement cues is one reason. So that's why you tend to seem to have clusters in time and space. And in London at the time you were there, you also had right-wing attacks. You had the case of the Welsh guy who drove down to London and ran over a guy in Finsbury Park, outside the Finsbury Park uh, centre. So you have this back and forth. So I mean, his attack was a response in his own self-justification to to one of the attacks which had happened either the London Bridge or the Westminster attack. So you have this kind of reciprocal escalation between the two. You're having indirect encouragement cues. And in the London case in specifics, it was at that point quite difficult to go to Syria to fight. So you people have been, the years before, just flying to, flying to Turkey, cruising around, having a bit of holiday for a few days, and then wandering down to the Syrian border, and the Turkish government just kind of leading, pointing the way. Mm-hmm. So this was stopped, so you had kind of frustrated jihadis, you know, frustrated foreign fighters. So, I mean, what's the next big thing to go and fight in Syria? doing an attack in your own country. So those things tend to come together. Uh, I mean, it has to be seen with Donald Trump. I mean, you have a big peak in right-wing extremism. Is that, we don't know this now because we haven't investigated it. And I mean, there's people doing lots of research on it, so I can't be anyway not hard advice on this. But I mean, we have to see like, what are these, how do these factors come together? And why is there clusters in specific places and specific? uh, Some of the clusters can also be that because in certain cities you have much stronger uh, what are called radical milieus so like different movements, groups who then radicalize people so there's a larger percentage of them 
And then you have a larger chance that one of these guys who was radicalized in and around these milieus will carry out an attack. So, for example, if you look at England, for example, you have, tend to have a dis at least in our data set, you have a disproportionate amount of people from Yorkshire. So, I mean, it, that's probably a reflection that in Yorkshire you have a stronger far-right scene and some of these guys eventually fall out of the movements and carry out attacks. When a lone actor plans an attack, is it usually part of their plan to, to get caught or get killed? Shortly afterwards, a man was arrested nearby by local uniformed police officers. At least 20 FBI agents converged on the cabin near the remote town of Lincoln, Montana, just after noon today, looking for evidence that could solve the mystery of the Unabomber. Armed officers then fired two shots, killing the suspect, fearing he was wearing an explosives vest. Do any of them ever have a plan to get away? And does their exit strategy differ depending on the ideology they prescribe to? So that's part, as I say, this is exactly one of the questions. I've added a new column to my data set, exactly stating who the outcome, suicide, killed by the police, arrested or escaped. And I want to see, or we want to see rather, I mean, does it vary between jihadists? Does it vary with far-right groups? Does it vary in Italy to Germany and so on? What you have in many cases is, so we don't know, I can't tell you the precise data yet. So we have the data there, we just have to work through it. Someone like Anders Breivik very consciously handed himself over because he wanted to use his trial as a platform. He was really angry when he was first condemned as having mental illness and not being fit to stand trial because he's gone, I want to stand trial because the trial is my platform to share my views with the world. You have others like uh, the Brendan Tarrant in the Christchurch attacker who handed himself in, uh, didn't you know, risk getting shot by the police and he um, didn't actually use his court case sentence. Well. It's hard to, some of these guys have very long in their own heads, they have like long-term plans, you know, they're going to be the guy that goes to prison and radicalize people in prison or you know, they're going to be a martyr by being in prison, you know, they're going to be, their their imprisonment is a step to help whatever cause they have. So I don't have, we don't have the data to say how many people, which type of ideology, which countries at the moment, which will have a variation of it from my own personal experience with the data is that we have a lot of people who are just going to fuck it. I mean, I'm going to, they kind of, I'm, I mean, not necessarily planning to die, but also not going to say too upset if they don't die. And then you have some people like this case I discussed with you of the former Al-Shabaab uh, militant who had done the entire routine of preparing himself for his own death. Like there's some specific rituals according to his own interpretation of Islam. And he was really angry that the police shot him in the leg and didn't kill him. The cartoonist and his five-year-old granddaughter were able to take shelter in a specially secured bathroom. When the police arrived two minutes later, the would-be killer attacked them too. Police shot him in the knee to stop him. And he was like shouting at the police there like, oh, what are you doing? Kill me, blah, blah, blah. And he tried to provoke the police to kill him. And they didn't. But then you have the case of the guy who did the shooting of the American soldiers at Frankfurt Airport in 2010. Officials say a 21-year-old Kosovo man shot and killed two U.S. airmen and wounded two others aboard this bus as it sat outside Frankfurt's airport. German authorities say the gunman and U.S. military personnel had an altercation in front of the bus before he started shooting. The attacker also briefly boarded the bus and was taken into custody when he tried to escape. And he handed himself over directly to the police because he didn't want to shoot any German policemen. Uh, and he didn't really use his court case as a platform. So it depends a lot on the different uh, uh, individuals and so on. So I, we, I can't give you any conclusive answer as regarding 
patterns within the across ideologies or but it is something we are actively looking at. Well, most of them don't get away, which is one point. We had a few guys like Eric Rudolph, the guy who put the bomb at the Atlanta Olympic Games. The bombing at Centennial Olympic Park this morning was an evil act of terror. He was on the run for years. In 1996, the search began. Rudolph is believed to belong to the Christian identity, known as a white supremacist sect, which is anti-gay, anti-Semitic, and anti-foreign. Search teams comb the mountains of North Carolina looking for any sign that Rudolph was there. Nobody believed he would leave. He's from this area. He knows the area incredibly well. He grew up here. He uh, is a survivalist. He can, he can live up there forever. There were reports he was spotted buying groceries at this bylaw. His truck was later found deep in the woods. One of the FBI's most wanted, now no longer on the run. But those guys are definitely the exception. There are very, very few that get away with it. How big a part does online radicalization play? There's a certain narrative out there sometimes that, to parents, that your kids could be radicalised right under your nose in their own bedrooms and that anyone can become a terrorist. All right, well, the two most recent mass shootings in the United States have sparked continuing debate about the ways in which people are being radicalized online. According to research by the University of Maryland, more than 73% of the time, social media played a role in helping to radicalize people towards extremist ideologies in the U.S. in general. That's from a study from 2011 to 2016. Compare that to the previous five years where the number was just over 26%. From your data... How many of these lone actors have been radicalised online? What tends to happen is someone carries out an attack, he's shot by the police. First thing you do is you look at is Facebook. And then you see on this Facebook, this guy is, is befriended with X and Y jihadi organisations and he follows all the Twitter accounts of ISIS in Syria. And it's clear, online radicalisation. Uh, whereas in fact, in many of these cases, it's, it is a, there is online radicalisation, but you also have dimensions of offline radicalisation, which... By, purely by confirmative bias, there's no need to go digging more. For, for example, the Halle uh, killer. In the early hours of April 4th, Sarah Halimi, a 65-year-old Orthodox Jew, was savagely murdered by one of her neighbors, Kabili Traore. The 27-year-old Franco-Malian Muslim is accused of having broken into her flat. He then allegedly beat her to death before hurling her body off the balcony into the courtyard below. I mean, his family, his mother, is an open anti-Semite. So, I mean, and they said, oh, he was online radicalized. I mean, he was radicalized online, but he also had an anti-Semitic mother who people in his family had these views. So it's a combination, usually a combination of the two. In my experience, there's not, there's one particular case in London, which is always given an example of someone who's completely radicalized online, but they're very much the exception. So it's usually a, a mixture of online radicalization where you take your views and then you valid, validate them with your buddy. So I'm reading about, let's say, I don't know, corona conspiracy theories on the internet. And then I go, oh, Jesus, that makes sense. And then I go to you and go, Jesus, John, do you hear about this? It's a corona conspiracy theory. And then you go, Jesus, that makes sense as well, Frank. And then you kind of value, so it's, a, it's between the two. And if you compare like how technology developed, so we don't really have fully offline spaces anymore. You know, you're always watching, you know, the WhatsApp, you have, the, the boundary between the two isn't as hard as it was in 1998, where you had to go home, turn on your PC, low internet, you only could afford to use it for X amount of time. So, I mean, the online and the offline, they're complementary realms of radicalization rather than separate. And I find that, I mean, in court cases, you carry out the attack, you're already arrested. 
Do you know, the people that are seeing you do it, you don't need to, they don't bother. You don't, like, there's no obligation of the police to go and continue to find out more. Like, where else did this radical views come from? Especially with right-wing cases, when you consider that the AfD here in Germany had a campaign also locally in, in Hessen, uh, the area when the attack in Hano on these shisha bars carried out. Gunmen targeted a shisha bar in the town centre, a traditional Middle Eastern establishment for smoking flavoured tobacco. Police say there's evidence that the deadly attack was carried out by a far-right extremist. The attacks also left several people injured. The suspect, a 43-year-old German man, was found dead in his home. After they had a campaign against him, a national and a regional campaign against these shisha bars calling them like, going on about like criminality and so on. A lot of accusations as well this morning in the German press and from German politicians, mainstream politicians, about uh, the far-right AFD and the fact that as the second largest party in the Bundestag, uh, it has facilitated or normalised uh, the kind of uh, hate speech that we see in the manifesto uh, of uh, the gunman who took on, began his rampage here at 10pm on Wednesday night um, outside this shisha barn. Uh, the AFD, in fact, tweeted uh, yesterday, Christina, distancing itself uh, from the attack and yet linking to that very manifesto that the gunman had said that he wanted widely disseminated across the world. So, I mean, of course, it's just easier to look at the guy who carried out the attacks, ludicrous ramblings online rather than embedding it into this notion that this is a national party in Germany which is identifying targets encouraging people to do something about it so I mean there's it's kind of convenient in my opinion and this is an opinion shared by everyone now I should say it's probably it's more of a singular one that sometimes there's a conservative bias the internet data is there some of the very smart lads also shape the data that they leave you know they don't find the juicy details they don't leave it there the more computer savvy ones, and I think there's a danger by over focusing in the online dimensions. It's, it's not to say that you shouldn't focus on it, but that this is a part of the back and forth between online and offline. But like you said, you look for people around you who agree with you. Now, because the world is so interconnected, someone living in the middle of nowhere can find a like minded people easily, even if they're thousands of miles away. They weren't able to do that before the internet, right? I mean, that's true. But the other point is that, like, all of the research that we know on collective radicalization, collective things in armed groups, the biggest predictor of being in an armed group, in whichever armed group, the IRA, ETA, any group you want, is having a, f- a friend or family member in it. To, to be involved in violence or consider violence as a specific course of action, we still don't have the evidence. Purely online relationships are strong enough to motivate people to carry out violence so I mean I don't know any cases that at least I'm convinced by I know some cases that it's uh, suggested and so on and the media plays a bigger role in this as well I mean they get some sensational this message that X or Y person left five years ago about hating Jews or hate whatever Roma or hating gays uh, and they go oh this is it it's fear whereas maybe it's fear maybe it's not maybe there's a whole load of things that go along with it because it's there in black and white on the internet and relatively accessible, I think there's a tendency to over-focus on it. Because a lot of the attacks in recent times haven't been, like, been carried out by people using Discord form and forums to talk to me at the other side of the world. Hasn't been carried out by people using Telegram. The guy who stabbed the candidate at the time, the current mayor of Cologne, in the neck in 2015, I think, was just an old-fashioned Nazi. He was someone who belonged in this milieu, and then he just stabbed her. He wasn't online in any sense. There was, and this, and you have a lot of these cases. And if we just focus on these 
cases of online for people who stylize their own radicalization they control the narrative of what they do then that's going um, I think that, that that isn't as productive a usage of our uh, time and efforts as would be to consider these as complementary realms I know I know from a academic point of view academics like to break things down into categories and classes and define them like how you were saying that you take out attacks if they don't meet your criteria some might just say that a murderer is a murderer what's the benefit of categorizing these killings as a specific type uh well i mean that's a fair point and i think it's a good point to reflect on uh, for any research that anybody does so i mean it's important to understand the phenomenon because the phenomenon is misunderstood i mean the first misunderstanding is that you know these guys are they're lurking in the shadows nobody knows what they're going to do no one knows when they're going to strike but then our research especially research by Bart Schur, uh, Schurman, our f- former colleague on the project from the University of Leiden, he shows that, his research especially shows, I know I'm stumbling stuff we did together, lone actors are always talking about what they're going to do. I mean, most of them leak the information about what they do. That is something that, before this research was done, wasn't known. So, I mean, it's clear that there is ways of finding out. They're not someone sinister, like Bond villain in an underground lair planning their attack. What we should do, in my opinion, from an ethical perspective, is we should provide a better empirical and theoretical understanding to those people who would eventually implement policies and that it's important to distinguish, we'll say, what we notice as embedded people compared to, with, let's say, we'll say peripheral types of lone actors because they're very, very different beasts. I mean, if you're only looking for within groups, you won't ever find a guy who is... The, on the outskirts, who never writes comments on YouTube videos, who never expresses view about the Americans, who never gives out about Barack Obama. So you let, so I mean, these are very, so I mean, it's a spectrum, but it's quite different. So you need to understand that these aren't all the same. Their radicalization patterns aren't the same. Has your research, are there any aspects of the research in general that has a practical application in preventing attacks or can it be used to inform security approaches? Uh, unfortunately as academics we don't set the policies the government's uh, security policies or also more broadly policies which would let's say support individuals who are vulnerable to kind of drifting into this kind of radical sphere but what we discover is we have a lot of cases of people who are released from prison uh, recently released from prison but that's uh, it's what uh, guys call Macaulay and Moskalenko who are these really brilliant America uh, I don't know uh, well based in America academics who worked on this notion of unfreezing. So it's unfreezing is where your your existing social network tends to disintegrate. So for example, if you're in prison, you kind of have a social network and you're there, you have your, your structured life, you come out, maybe your family doesn't want to have anything to do with you, maybe your partner has left with your children, uh, you can't find a job because you've criminal record, and you're left with nothing there, you're really adrift. So I mean, if people who are known to have radical views or have been convicted of for acts of political extremism are closely supervised but also supported once they leave prison there's many cases in our uh, uh, data set there which could have been potentially prevented so that's a kind of a an academic finding which could if it was carefully considered by the relevant bodies could uh, improve so you know, remove people getting killed in terrorist attack a securitized approach will never stop i mean uh, wouldn't prevent a lot of these attacks alone. So, I mean, if, if we take this case of this guy who's released from prison, there was in one of our case studies a guy 
who shot up, uh, shot at some cartoon, uh, an event related to cartoons and shot at the synagogue. So when he left prison, he actively went to the job center or to say, oh, I want to set my life back in order. And then they were like, uh, he couldn't get his appointment or whatever, left on a, without having got any interaction and then a few days later carried out the attack. So, the, I mean, the it's not just you have to watch them and spy on their phone or whatever. You know, you have to provide a broader uh, support network. So a lot of these guys are also very young. So we're people who have contact with different points of uh, the state, school teachers, sports teams, whatever. So, I mean, if we lived in a society which was more, we'll say the social services were better supported. If you had better aid, better trained social workers who are in disadvantaged neighborhoods where you know in this neighborhood there is an active far-right scene or there's an active jihadist, salafist scene. And some kid there is talking about at school, then the teacher finds out about it. I mean, these there should be open channels where you can go, this guy's acting a bit weird. Maybe someone should go and have a chat with him. And I don't mean the police in this sense, because if you, you go, the police then comes and you're going, it proves your point. Or, well, what happens? And you have good examples. So Aarhus in Denmark had a very big problem with foreign fighters leaving Aarhus fight in Somalia and then later in Syria and they developed this quite really impressive comprehensive network where the police are only involved at the very last end and these are people then you have like uh, neighborhood mentors uh, football coaches boxing coaches clerics like lads involved in motorbikes martial arts clubs which have a very comprehensive effort where clear channels where cases which would cause worry or potentially worry are brought the attention of other people who could help them and point them in the right direction. Many times it's just, in, and I mean, it's want to sound a bit like an Oprah Winfrey, but it's kind of a cry for help, you know. So you have examples where this is, where, and because in ours, there are number of people who then went to fight in Somalia and Syria, it's like com- collapsed. But the problem with this is it's very, it's expensive, it's not even that expensive, but it's time intensive. You need a lot of resources. It's multifaceted. But the problem is, if it's really successful, there's no attacks. But then, there's no attacks, so it's, it doesn't seem, how can you, that you can never prove this, this system, but it's not just a question of policing them. Okay, so this is my last question, and it's kind of a broad one. Why do we care about terrorism so much, either lone actors or groups? Isn't that what makes terrorism so effective? Should we just ignore it, because it's disproportionately reported and talked about I mean, in the Western world, I think the biggest killer of people is heart disease. Why worry so many people and give so much attention to terrorism, to something that only affects a tiny number of people each year? No, I mean, that's also a, cool, a good question. Like, they're an interesting question. Um, so first of all, in many senses, terrorism is a useful thing for depending who's carrying out the terrorism for uh, governments. I mean, I mean, you have the classic Donald Trump using any type of attacks by Muslims organized on a collective level or an individual level, using it scapegoat Muslims. Unpopular right-wing government is not like France all along with Sarkozy and now, of course, that other um, brillic, whatever he's called, uh, Macron. I mean, terror attacks are meat and gravy. They love it. I don't, no, I don't want to say they love it. That's not true. You know, like in France, like this madness that they have at the moment, because, I mean, this terrible attack where that poor teacher was killed. I mean, this is something that Macron is using for his election campaign. So there's the, so that, I mean, it's fear why they do it. The question, should we just ignore it? Also not, because I mean, I don't think you should, uh, the same way you could say criminal, uh, domestic violence, more women are killed by their partners uh, 
a year uh, and we don't focus on it. And maybe we should. You know, maybe the same attention should be put on violence in the home, uh, specific, specific patterns of anti-women violence. And, and that isn't focused on. So, I mean, in my opinion, it would be important to look at why men tend to kill their close female relatives or partners. So, there's a moral obligation because it's also not little. You know what I mean? Like, that time a few years ago, when everyone was out for the um, French Bastille Day and some guy drove a truck on top of 85 people. That's that's a lot. None of those people could have died. Whereas heart disease, I mean, it's so multifactorial. It's so... I mean, heart disease in many ways is just a product of getting old. You know, it's, it's kind of inevitable. Yeah. No matter how healthy yeah. you live, you could get heart disease. So I think it's important to focus on it, but I think your point is correct. And of course, you have these sensationalist <clears throat> media coverage, which is extremely unhelpful a lot of the time, apart from even the mis- would say the misrepresentation of what actually happened. So apart from that kind of lack of journalism, professionalism, I mean, it may, you can sell drama, violence, sells newspapers. You know, so, I mean, a lot of media coverage is very unhelpful as well so how we talk about terrorism is something and there is research done on it uh, and interesting research so how terrorist or political violence is talked about in the media or by by authorities is a relevant thing that we can improve upon which might in fact also preclude or uh, lessen the likelihood of further terrorism I mean not glamorizing I mean I'm saying it now I've mentioned I don't know how many terrorists we've used there but I mean academic research in general is for a much more niche audience I mean it's not I mean no one I mean if you, anyone has the misfortune to read our papers I mean this isn't easy reading you know, this isn't something that you're going to read on the, the little metro newspaper while you're on the way to work uh, but I think also academics have to be careful about it, and sometimes a lot of academics aren't very careful about how they write uh, so I think we should improve how we talk about terrorism is something that can be improved upon at nationals government levels media level academic level and people who should know better to be honest and stop inviting fucking Nazis and Nazi apologists are like you remember a few years ago Pat Kenny had like this Khalid Kelly guy who later went on to blow himself up in Syria or Iraq don't have those guys on don't give these guys a platform yeah yeah, yeah. thanks to Dr. Francis O'Connor for talking to me He has a book coming out soon on a totally separate subject. It's called Understanding Insurgency, Popular Support for the PKK in Turkey. And it's published by the Cambridge University Press. This has been an interview for yarnpodcast.com. Produced by me, John Roach. And a special thanks to Brian O'Regan for putting me in contact with Dr. O'Connor.